Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Welcome to the Heritage Voices Podcast. Heritage Voices focuses on how CRM and heritage professionals, public employees, tribes, and descendant communities can better work together to protect their heritage. My name is Jessica Uquinto, ethnographer and founder of Living Heritage Anthropology, and my co-host is Lyle Balenqua, Hopi archaeologist, ethnographer, river guide, and educator. So welcome to the first episode of the podcast. Or I should say episode zero, since this is the introductory episode to the podcast. I have Lyle Belenqua here with me today, and we're going to first start by talking a little bit about the, the podcast and what you might expect from it, and then we're going to go into an interview. He's going to interview me so you can get to know me a little bit as your host and some of the work that I've done before you hear me interview other people, including Lyle himself. So basically, the idea for this podcast was that there there isn't really a lot of, of resources out there for people that are interested in doing tribal consultation. It seems like it's really grown a lot and that more and more federal agencies are taking it seriously and expecting people outside of of archaeology more and more to be engaging in tribal consultation like natural resource specialists or managers. And a lot of those people don't necessarily have a background in anthropology the way archaeologists do. And so I just wanted to start this podcast basically in order to, to help people have a little bit of, of background in how to better work with tribes and other descendant communities and not necessarily focused on the laws and things like that because I, I think that that is more out there in the world, but just by hearing stories of tribal consultation or collaborative ethnography, indigenous archaeology, and how it's done well in the past, really creative solutions that people have come to working together, and just really humanizing it, showing that there's a lot of different approaches and that that you can do really, really interesting, good, good things with it. 
So what I'm thinking about for, for the podcast is interviewing, having different guests that I interview about themselves, their work, connections to different topics or themes. So for example, one of our first themes will be Grand Canyon National Park. So first interviewing Janet Cohen, the tribal program manager, and then interviewing Lyle here about Hopi connections to the Grand Canyon. So looking at that topic from a couple different perspectives. And at first I'm hoping to have about one episode a month, but ultimately it would be nice to to maybe get up to, to two episodes a month or something like that, a little bit more regular. So my goal with this podcast too is is for it to really be a platform for tribes, descendant communities, and their nonprofits, etc., to be able to talk about the issues that are of concern to them about their cultural heritage. And so if you are part of one of those groups or you work with one of those groups and they'd be interested in being on the air, please don't hesitate to to contact me and we can do some public outreach related to those topics. You can reach me at my, I have a Facebook for my, my business, which is Living Heritage Anthropology. You can email me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org or on Twitter, I'm at livingheritage. I think that's pretty much all the, the, the main platforms. But don't hesitate to reach out to me if you have any questions or suggestions for the show or if you'd like to be a guest. Is there anything that you'd like to add, Lyle, that you maybe would like to see? or Just that this is a good forum to provide you know, a lot of information about indigenous perspectives regarding archaeology and anthropology, and I encourage and invite other natives out there who are either directly involved with these fields or work with these agencies or other personnel to become involved and come to the table and say your piece. And with that, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who helped Lyle and I to get this podcast going, and especially to thank all of the tribal members who provided their guidance and feedback and support in making this podcast possible. So a couple of quick points before we get started. First, Throughout the Heritage Voices podcast, we're going to be talking about a variety of laws and using some legal terminology. So if you're confused about what I'm referring to in any of these episodes, please refer to www.livingheritageanthropology.org, and there's a resources section which has links to many of the different related laws and regulations, other helpful websites, a list of relevant sources, etc., So basically, the laws most referred to in this podcast will be the National Historic Preservation Act, or NHPA, which set aside a process for federal agencies, including anything they fund or permit, to consider their impact on archaeology, on historic buildings, on places of importance to tribes and other communities, which are referred to as traditional cultural properties. It also created state and tribal historic preservation officers, SHPOs and TIPOs for short, who federal agencies must consult with on their actions during the process created by NHPA. 
Then the other law that will come up pretty regularly on this podcast is NAGPRA, or the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which created a process for federal agencies, again, or museums or other institutions who receive federal funding to inventory and return Native American human remains, sacred objects, objects of cultural patrimony, and funerary objects to tribes, as well as the process if human remains are discovered later on federal lands. Many states also have similar laws to both NHPA and NAGPRA. So hopefully that clarifies a few. I mean, very briefly, obviously, (laughs) Um, these are extremely basic overviews of these laws, but the basic idea behind a couple of the laws that will come up a lot in this podcast. For other laws and regulations, or to look into those two in more depth, again, please go to www.livingheritageanthropology.org and go to the resources section. Also, please let me know what resources were missing or what you would like to see that would be more helpful. So second, I would like to take a moment to remind everyone that although we talk about legal topics on this podcast, that I am not a lawyer. My guests are usually not lawyers, and even if they are a lawyer, they're not your lawyer. So please do not take this podcast as legal advice. Finally, I do want to clarify that these first four interviews occurred prior to the election. So had they occurred after the election, there might have been some differences in conversation than what you hear currently. All right, back to the interview. All right, well... Do you want to get sure. started? Yes, get started. Well, I guess I'll start by introducing myself a little bit. Like we said, my name is Jessica Uquinto, and I am the owner of Living Heritage Anthropology, which is an ethnographic and tribal consultation services firm. And basically, I got into anthropology... You know, it's funny because actually I kind of grew up. Uh, my parents were, were always very big in, they were always very interested in Native American culture, actually. And it's funny because that was not my thing <laughs> as a kid. I don't know. They they always um, went and they, you know, went and, and bought uh, kutsinas and, and rugs and went to dances and so I grew up doing all of that but I don't know it always it always felt a little funny to me I guess and and then as I got older I did this program called Amigos de las Americas which basically it's for high school and college age students and I spent eight weeks in a rural village in Panama as a high school, like between my junior and senior years of high school, just doing community service work and and living um, with one other American in this village. And that experience completely transformed everything about me and how I saw the world. And, and I just knew after that that I wanted to work with people from different cultures. And... And that I wanted to to make a difference in the world. That was always something that was part of my background. I'm Jewish, and you know my family came over from Poland right before World War II, and there was always 
this social justice focus in in being raised that way basically this idea that if you don't that your that your rights are entwined with the rights of other people and that if you don't look out for the rights of other people that you're next <laughs> basically so so that was always a focus in my family and so coming out of amigos and then going into college anthropology just seemed very natural to me kind of especially at the University of Arizona which is where I went to undergrad it's a very applied program so it was I could work with other cultures in a way that was beneficial as opposed to just getting knowledge to get knowledge basically and so at the University of Arizona I started volunteering at the the Bureau of Applied Research and Anthropology with Dr. Richard Stoffel and then I worked for him for four years and we worked on a wide variety of projects ethnographic tribal consultation just basically looking at Native American connections to place across the southwest and Great Basin so you know whether that was working on on Nellis Air Force Base or the Nevada test site helping with tribal consultation or looking at pilgrimage path path pilgrimage paths through an Air Force base to working at Honto National Monument with Hopi, Zuni, uh, White Mountain, Apache elders talking about what that place meant to them and what kind of interpretation about their connections to that place they would like to see at the park to the, the project that I led up, which was the Juan Batista de Anza National Historic Trail Study which basically looked at the town of San Miguel de Orcasitas in Mexico, in Sonora, where Juan Batista de Anza took from there and the surrounding area in Sonora and Sinaloa, took settlers for the first across land route to San Francisco to found the, the city of San Francisco, California, to try and get that up before the Russians came down from the north. What was really interesting with that project was looking at the way that the the people in the community, the way that their lifestyle would have been brought up or what kind of continuity in their lifestyle would have been there for the the settlers. So what kind of traditions that they do today would have would have been brought by the settlers up to California. And there were some interesting moments, like, for example, the, the tribes in California, they didn't have pottery, they only had basketry. And so that was actually something that the settlers from Mexico brought up to San Francisco, because unlike what what is uh, thought about a lot of the settlers, this was a very mixed group with a lot of indigenous heritage. And so that was a tradition that they brought up to California, actually. And what I think is really important about studies like that is it just shows the depth of history in the West. I mean, this happened in 1775, and a lot of people don't think of American history being in the West until much, much later, let alone the history 
prior to that of, of the indigenous people in the area. So it just, that study, the other studies that we did just kind of go to show the depth of, of history in this area, which I think is, is really important and, and often overlooked. So anyway, from there, I went up to Northern Arizona University, same as, as Lyle, and did my master's there. And when I was there, I did basically a, a combination of medical anthropology and tribal consultation work. So I worked with uh, Dr. Lisa Hardy. She's got some really fantastic health programs in Flagstaff that she's, that she's worked on. So I worked on a, a substance abuse study and a, a food study and a and health and resilience study. And then I also worked at Grand Canyon National Park. And what I was doing there was I worked for the, the cultural resources and the tribal programs, basically gathering the ethnographic data that was already already that the park already had and gathering that up into more of a a usable format for management into a database so basically when projects came up like the the fish management plan ea i could go through this database and those sources and quickly pull up all information that we had so far related to fish at the grand canyon which they could then use as a starting point to talk to the tribes. And then I also worked with the tribal program on some of their tribal consultation efforts, like the backcountry management plan, some of their NAGPRA work, including creating their inventory and notice of inventory completion and some unexpected uh, discoveries. And then also on the there was some zuni concerns related to plants uh, with the the park's fire management so i was able to lead up consultation on that and go out to zuni talk to them about their different concerns with plants and the plants present in the fire area that they had mentioned and then we were able to take the the tribal members out to the area and talk more about plants and their concerns and things like that. After that, again, I I did a a brief foray back into medical anthropology, and then my husband got a job up in northwest Colorado, and basically at that point, I realized that if I was going to do what I really wanted to do, that I was going to have to do it myself. So that's when I created... Living Heritage Anthropology, which so far we've been mostly working with the three Ute tribes on some different projects, several interdisciplinary projects, combined archaeology and ethnographic projects with Dominguez Anthropological Research Group out of Grand Junction, mostly focusing on Ute trails. And then we also just got awarded an NSF grant in partnership with them and History Colorado, which they have the the SHPO office and or the State Historic Preservation Office and the museum up in Colorado. And that's looking at basically looking at Ute traditional cultural knowledge as a way 
to teach STEM learning or science, technology, engineering, and math. So we're going to be doing some camps with Ute children, or actually they're not children, they're high school students, I think, with Ute high school students about archaeology, about ethnography and ethnobotany, and with elders there providing Ute traditional knowledge and taking some of that as well as other traditional practices like building wiki-ups, beadwork, things like that, and creating an exhibit in the Ute Museum out in Montrose to provide a, a wider reach for that information, and then also to provide kits that teachers can use to teach about these topics. And then another, <laughs> the other really big exciting project right now is um, we just got awarded a project out in the, the greater Cedar Mesa area. So the Monticello Field Office just awarded us a project to start a lit review on tribal connections to that area. So this area is part of the area that a group of tribes are pushing President Obama to name as a national monument. So it forms part of the proposal that these tribes have put together for the proposed Bears Ears National Monument in Southeast Utah. And so the first part of that is to do a lit review and then depending on, on future funding, hopefully to continue to expand that project as well. So those are the, the big things that I've been up to the big, the big moments in the development of, of my career. That's a lot. <laughs> That's really, really great to hear all the different diversity of projects that you have going on there up, up in that part of the world. Whoops. So apparently I talked a little too long there. So we'll have a, a quick ad real quick right now and then jump right back into the interview. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. What, what was it for you, I guess, the impetus? You said growing up as a child, you, you weren't really into some of the things that your parents were introducing to you. What did you take out of that? What, what, what were some of the, those fragments or remnants from your childhood that you can see coming out in your work today, those little hints of, of your early introduction? Yeah, and that's a great question. And I think what made me uncomfortable about those experiences was that, and I, you know, I mean, at the time, it's not like I thought about it this way, but basically the, the commodification of culture and just, I don't know, the, I think the approach that some people have, and, and not that my parents had that approach, but, 
but it can just it it can be a little a little funny but you know my parents for example they I felt like they approached it in a way that was a lot more respectful and, you know, they were genuinely interested in, in learning. And I remember the, they, uh, when they found out that there was, that it was cottonwood roots to make the katsinas with, they had, it turned out, I mean, they just happened to have a couple of, of cottonwood roots that had been laying in the sun on the side of our house for, you know, two decades, which apparently is, or I don't even remember how long, but for a while. And when they, they mentioned this, you know, someone said, well, but that's perfect because that's what we do anyway. So we, we went back up the next year to Hopi and brought those cottonwood roots up to my parents' favorite carver. And I do not remember (laughs) his name, but but it was memories like that that I really remember going into his house and talking to him and just learning from him. I remember going to Arrivy, you know, as a, a little kid that was probably about as, as different as, you know, a little city kid. <laughs> um, as, so that, that memory definitely sticks out. I remember, um, too, that we went to one of the dances and they were throwing Wonder Bread into the, the crowd. And... That was kind of the first time that I understood that cultural that that um, sometimes those things that look like people are losing their culture are actually signs of people maintaining their culture. So basically, you know, culture changes, and the important thing was was throwing out food. And maybe what that food looked like changed, but that the the meaning behind it was the same, and that's something that I think is a is a a really important point too. Is that people tend to look at tribes and say, "Oh, you drive a truck, you're not a real Indian," and that in a lot of ways th- that can be. A sign, more of a sign of maintenance of culture than loss of culture. And that, you know, being a, a Jew, for example, that doesn't look like it would have looked like 100 years ago, but that doesn't make me any less of one than my grandparents would have been. So I think that was an important distinction that I learned that I think a lot of people today still have kind of a hard time grappling with. And then, you know, when I went to, I thought I wanted to do Latin American development work. And when I went and started working with Stoffel, I realized that, you know, there's a lot, a lot to be done here within our own country. There's a lot of injustice still. And that, that maybe I can have a, a bigger impact even just by, by fighting these fights than by going elsewhere and and fighting fights there let's talk about your your work now you mm-hmm. know in in the modern day in terms of um what is it about anthropology that drew you in and then the second part is why native americans mm-hmm. why did you from 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 your academic training 
Um, again, you just mentioned some of these, you wanted to keep it local or keep it home, so to speak, in terms of where your efforts are, are, are focused at. But um, what do you hope to, to help in, or what is your focus in, in your work working with Native tribes? Yeah, so I think that why Native Americans? Because it's a little shocking, you know. It was a, it was a, I think a little shocking as a child, and shocking still all of the time today to see how much inequality there is within this country and how much injustice is still happening with regards to tribes. And so I think that if we don't address the things in our own backyard, how can we, how can we move on and work elsewhere? Plus, I mean, there's just something special about these places that I grew up and, and that I visited. And I think that making sure that the Native American voice is heard can help protect those places in a lot of ways. And I think my focus particularly is I'm a really big advocate of community-based participatory research, making sure that the community's voice itself is heard throughout the whole process, that information goes back to the community, that they're that the community is getting something tangible and something helpful to them out of it. And also a form of empowerment or, you know, ultimately making my job obsolete <laughs> would be would be very lovely. You know, that that really ultimately it would be great if these efforts if were able to come through the community instead of instead of through outsiders. Man, you're asking me hard questions. <laughs> what what do you see as uh you work with you mentioned some federal agencies in there. Do you and I think you mentioned in your introduction there there's an upswing or maybe a maybe a more positive trend towards mm-hmm. being proactive for these federal agencies. Right. Do you think that is a result of the climate or, or the environment of anthropology changing with how students are trained? And do you also feel that that's a result of Native Americans given more opportunity to come to the table? So do you think, you know, I, I guess I'm thinking of the old school era, so to speak, of anthropology and archaeology where it was kind of a straight science kind of deal and very little interaction with the folks that were being studied. So how do you view the, the, the environment of training new and upcoming or students in archaeology, anthropology? How is that affecting mm-hmm. uh, interactions with Native communities? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's a hugely important point. I think, I'm not sure I've ever thought about it that way, <laughs> but I think that's true. I think that, I mean, because we're clearly seeing more of a shift towards openness to including Native Americans and, and having that voice there. 
more of a respect for tribal sovereignty, I'd say. Although, you know, then you always <laughs> see the other side. But, um, but I do think that probably anthropology had a large, a large influence there. And maybe it's just that the longer that you work with people, how can you keep thinking that they don't have a voice and that they don't, that that voice shouldn't be shared? So maybe I, I feel like the more you collaborate, the more you want to collaborate. The more you give voice, the more you want to give more voice. Just because you, I think people, anthropologists have seen through these collaborations some really interesting and exciting and creative solutions too. Not just Native Americans sharing their story, but sharing their perspectives as the original land managers that... You know, for example, one example that I love that I wasn't a part of, but on the Grand Canyon, there was damage being done to, to some petroglyphs. And, you know, Park Service is thinking about how to, to fix this. And what do they do? They stick a whole bunch of giant, very prickly cactus in front of the petroglyphs. And sure enough, people stopped messing with them. And that was based on tribal input. And so I think you know, the more you get these kind of creative solution moments that the more you more you want to collaborate and that kind of moves up the chain as those people that were collaborating move up in the hierarchy. Also, I think that the federal agencies recognize, and this is a point that I don't see pointed out very often, but that tribes and, and tribal lands affect their lands as well. Tribal policies affect federal policies. So, for example, at Grand Canyon, it's surrounded by reservation on a lot of different sides, and those reservation policies affect the visitors to the park. And so I think a lot of people see tribal consultation as a one-way street or almost like, oh, look, we're humoring these people. <laughs> but if it's done right, it's really valuable for everybody. And yeah, that probably that probably does stem from, from that shift in anthropology. Although, I mean, you, you get the credit for saying it because <laughs> I didn't think about it until you said it. <laughs> what are some of the, you know, you talk about working with the different tribal groups. A lot of times, there's differing perspectives from different tribes about one issue. Mm -hmm. How do you, as the ethnographer working for one tribe, what, what is the, I know there's, there's got to be some difficulty in advocating for one tribe because they're more or less maybe employing you or you're working more directly with them. Mm -hmm. Is that hard to navigate in terms of how do you reconcile the differences between tribes and where is your boundary in terms of how much you get involved in their right. politics. Right. Right. That's a great question. And that was one thing that I saw when I was at Grand Canyon that I was really hopeful about was that it seems like more and more the tribes are working together on things, that there's a recognition that if they work together that they have more power, basically, and and that... I mean, at one point, we were there was a disagreement happening between some of the tribes on one of the issues, 
And they actually said, you know what, we need to stop. We need to meet separately. We need to reach a conclusion and then we will tell the park what our joint conclusion is. And that was, I think, a really powerful moment and that's what they ended up doing. And I, I would hope and I'd like to, to see more of that in the future because, I mean, we didn't want to pick between tribes. You know, that's not, nobody wins in that situation. So that was a really hopeful moment there. And, you know, in, in other projects, it, I've seen how most of the time, different tribes' stories seem to actually fit together pretty nicely in a lot of ways. Where, you know, looking at the, the work that we're, we're doing up um, in Cedar Mesa, for example, there was a project just done up in Canyonlands and Arches, and they were looking at, you know, basically the Utes and the Paiutes saying, we've been here, we've come from Fremont, and the, the Hopis saying, you know, we came up and we were up there for a while, and then we came back down. So we also came from Fremont. And, you know, basically those stories don't really conflict in a way that I think people sometimes make them conflict, that they can both be descended from the Fremonts and have that connection to each other. And that's something actually Lee mentioned the other day when he was up in Cortez. He gave a public talk and he talked about working with the Utes and how their stories fit together. There was one case where we were working with a federal agency and basically they they wanted us to use one tribe's interpretation to cancel out another tribe's interpretation. And we said, we're not going to do that, first of all. And they insisted. And so we went to that tribe that they wanted. It canceled out and we got further data to back up what they said. And at that point, they wanted a Word document of our report. <laughs> and we said, we're not going to do that. And basically, we ended up having to take it to higher levels in that federal agency and it was it was dropped and and so we didn't have to cancel out that one tribe story but yeah i mean it can be it can be tricky but you know i think one thing to remember is that there's diversity in all groups so a lot of times people go oh this tribe they say different things about this and so that means they don't know what they're talking about. And I think it's important to recognize that that means that they know what they're talking about. <laughs> because just like with Americans, if you were to talk to men and women, you'd get different answers. If you were to talk to different people within society or different places, you'd get different answers. And that doesn't mean that I'm not authentically American. It just means that I have different perspectives within that group. And I think that the same applies to tribes and it applies between tribes, that it's it's okay for people to have different perspectives and that shows the strength of culture, not the weakness of it. Okay, so it's time for our last commercial break. We'll be right back in a moment. At 
digitaltraining.site, we believe that spending money on learning is great if it helps you solve a problem. If you're a cultural resource management professional, you want to make your workflow faster and more efficient to beat your competitors. If you're a student or young professional, you'll want to learn marketable skills to get that job. If you're a faculty, you want to stay up to date with teaching topics, but you feel overwhelmed by all the technologies and tools out there. Digitaltraining.site is for you. You'll get relevant topics by top-level instructors and downloadable materials at an affordable cost. And if you're an enrolled student, apply for a scholarship and attend for free. Start learning now at digitaltraining.site. Do you see yourself playing a mediator role quite a bit in terms of mentioned different different perspectives and so how do you, how do you what is your if you if you view yourself as a mediator in some regards um, how does that play out in terms of your work I do see myself as a mediator usually I mean basically for example let's take working at at a park your job is to represent that park. But at the same time, you're not doing your job if you're not representing the tribes to that park. And in fact, you probably end up doing more of that than <laughs> representing the park to the tribes just because I feel like in a lot of ways, the tribes tend to have a better understanding of the way the, the federal government works, then vice versa. Just because tribes, in a sense, have to, they have to walk in both worlds, whereas federal agency people generally ha haven't had to do that as much, and so you have to give generally a lot more background knowledge. And that, I mean, that is definitely changing, and I think that there is a lot more awareness out there, but yeah, I think mediating a lot of it is just trying to provide education, sometimes over and over and over and over again. But there's always, yeah, there's always that mediator role. And I mean, that's true in life too, but but um, definitely in this type of work. You, you talked about some of your work up in the Bears Ears area and uh, the preliminary efforts you were doing to, to help the agencies up there there's there's some tribal support for this initiative, the Bears Ears, and a lot of it, and there's also some opposition from some native groups up there right. in terms of the locals that are not uh, in favor of the monument itself. What is your hope for that initiative? That's a big question. <laughs> so I just want to clarify first that this is just my personal opinion and that I am not representing anybody with this answer. This is just my personal thoughts and opinion. Obviously, I'm going to back the, the tribes and the, the tribal governments on that one. I think that that area needs protection and I hope that with a national monument, that it would get more of that. I understand the concerns that opening it up to be a national monument without that additional protection could cause additional problems. So I would, I would hope that if it was nominated, that 
it would really be given a lot of thought and done in a way that that area is really protected. I understand also why there would be concerns. I know one of the big concerns from tribal members is is about wood gathering, which is really important to their life. I mean, <laughs> uh, keeping warm in the winter is important. And I understand why, even though it the the proposal would not the way it's set up now would not restrict that wood gathering, but I understand why there's that hesitation there because it's only just now, for example, are, are tribes really being able to gather in national parks. Can I can see why there would be a hesitancy about are we really going to be able to do our traditional activities here? Are we really going to be able to wo- do wood gathering? So I guess what I would say would be, would be that I definitely support the tribes in this monument that they're proposing and I would just like to see I would like to see their voice continued throughout to make sure that these concerns within those tribes are addressed. Okay. I I guess I'd, I'd maybe take us in another direction here. Mm-hmm. You know, you you work as would you identify yourself as an ethnographer? That's a good question. I mean, yes, because <laughs> I do ethnography. I know that can be a pretty unpopular thing when you're working with tribes. I mean, anthropologists have a pretty bad reputation on a lot of, of reservations. They've done a lot of damage, which is is not what I want to do, for sure. So maybe an applied ethnographer <laughs> would uh, have less of that connotation, hopefully. Yeah, kind of a, a, a trick question there for you. Um, <laughs> you know, the second part to that is, you know, you talked about working with the tribes and getting them to become more involved in the type of work you do mm-hmm. as, as quote-unquote an ethnographer. Right. Do you think it is necessary for there to be a non-native involved in this work, particularly if you're dealing with more than one tribe? Mm. That's kind of a, again, goes back to that mediated role, but somewhat of an impartial voice. And do you think that, um, do you feel like your presence in dealing in some of these issues is a benefit or does it have some obstacles there that may go both ways? I see what you're getting at. You want you did like a whole circle there. I like that. Um, okay. Yes. Uh, I do think that. Well, I think anytime you can have a diversity of perspectives, you are going to improve your work. So I think that's one one thing that I like about community based participatory research is you can have the more academic, traditional perspective mixed with. The cultural perspective and I think when you do that you just get such a greater depth than you would get from one or the other so for example there's things that as somebody that lives the culture you're not going to see like you're just because you're living it you don't and um, that someone from the outside might see but I might see something on the outside and tell you about it and you're saying you're going to say to me no <laughs> like you've got that all wrong this is why 
So I think when you bring the two together, you just get a depth that you you just can't get with one or the other. I guess my concern, though, is that right now it's still so heavily weighted on the outside ethnographer side. And so I would like to see that ratio become a lot more even. But yeah, I think that mediator role, that outside perspective has a place, but it just needs to be in conjunction with the the insider voice. Where would you like to see yourself in 10 years? Ooh, (laughs) am I interviewing for a job? (laughs) You know, that is a great question. I... When I started this business two years ago, I I don't know that I saw myself being where I am right now. And obviously, I mean, I'm really happy. It it's it's taking really excited places, taking me really excited places. That's not really exciting places. <laughs> but one thing that I particularly have always been interested in and would love to do more of is working on the, the type of projects that you mentioned, which is combining youth and elders. So basically more of that experiential learning, like you're talking about on the river, providing opportunities for youth and elders to connect, to, to learn from each other, to have that, a, a place for that cultural transmission to take place. So... One one idea that Dr. Van Vlack, who I'm working with on that, that Cedar Mesa project, she and I have been interested in, in potentially pursuing is basically um, youth, elder, uh, traditional cultural property mapping type projects where you have youth who you're training in GIS or Google Maps or whatever format to do mapping, archaeology or ethnography or any of those skills, maybe all combined, and you have them go out with elders. So there's both, there's a lot of different aspects to that. There's youth empowerment, there's some of the the skills training, cultural transmission, cultural preservation. And I, I personally always think that I always really particularly like projects that focus on people's connection to place. And I think that mapping is a good way of, of focusing on that. And I think it provides, it makes it a little easier too on the elders when they have something specific that they're talking about, a specific place. But that's that's one type of project we'd like to pursue. Interested in potentially looking at climate change impacts as well. I don't know, I'd like to, to just really work with a bunch of different tribes in a bunch of different places and and keep learning and and growing and talked about starting maybe a nonprofit branch different things like that oop yeah i think we're 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 out of time yes but thank you jessica for sharing some of your history and what you do and what you'd like to see and some of the obstacles you face as a ethnographer working with tribes you know, I'm sure there's a lot of beneficial things that folks can learn in terms of how do you do this type of work. So uh, maybe another time for another subject for another talk. Yes, for sure. 
Thank you, Lyle, for, for yeah. interviewing me. Man, it's hard being interviewed. <laughs> like, I think this is a good learning moment for me as an ethnographer. <laughs> the other side of the coin, the other side yeah, of the microphone. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. thank you. Sure, thank you. So if you enjoyed today's episode, also go check out my episode on the Go Dig a Hole podcast which provides much more specific examples and advice to archaeologists on working with tribes. The Go Dig a Hole podcast focuses on providing guidance for people who are just getting started in the field of archaeology, so students, early career archaeologists, and also focuses on how to make archaeology more inclusive and engaging for different groups. So if those are topics that you are interested in, you should go check out the show. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org, or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.